You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app for the outdoor enthusiast. Hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, backpacking, everything that you enjoy doing outside can be found on the Go Wild app. Now, for more information about Go Wild, just go to wherever you currently download apps, search for it, and download it to your phone, play around with it, search for me. Also, you can go to timetogowild.com, and there's a ton of information on their website as well. So take some time, go check out Go Wild. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So how's the Missouri trip been so far? Uh, it's been pretty good. I haven't seen a whole lot of deer. I've seen it rained a little bit today. It's supposed to rain until Thursday night. Um, seen a lot of does and little winds. Um, just a couple small bucks chasing, but nothing of any size yet. So, I saw on the Instagram feed that you were scouting some public. Yeah, yeah, I scouted a little bit of public land right here close to the house. Um, I've been on it once before, but it was late season, so kind of wanted to hit it now to see kind of what scrapes and buck activity I found. And, you know, kind of as I went through it, I had my track on my Onyx, and then, like, when I would come across the scrape or a rub, I would mark it, and then any trail I would find, I would, like, stand on the trail, and I would just kind of face that direction and draw a line down it with a line, a line measure tool. Yep. And that way I was able to kind of get a – bearing on which way the trail was going and then that way when you look at the map kind of whole picture you could kind of see which direction the trails were going um so it kind of put out some interesting results after i kind of zoomed out you know i think i walked a little over five miles five and a half miles um so once i looked at the map whole scale there was some pretty interesting things in there uh, but it's just there's a lot of understory on that piece of public so if you get up six feet you probably can't see 10 yards Oh, really? Is this yeah, the stuff that's so. a little bit further north of where your parents are, or is this the stuff that's kind of around your, your cousin's place? No, this is stuff just north of us. Okay. Did you check out that one saddle that we saw on the on the topo map? No, I haven't made it there yet. Gotcha. I was doing a little bit of searching on my own around that area and uh, marked a, a few waypoints that were – you know, further east of where your cousin's was, and then also some of that same stuff that I think you were in today or yesterday. But uh, yeah. some good-looking stuff on the topo, I think, anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there was only – I 
I had a couple preset points that I wanted to check out. I think once I got to them, for the most part, there was only like one major bust um, that I got to, and I was just like, this isn't even worth you know spending time at. Um, but for the most part, they were signing most of the area. Some of them may have been on the opposite side of the hill or, or whatever, but they were pretty close. Are all the leaves down for the most part down there, or are some of the trees still holding the no, fairly old leaves? They're still they're just starting to drop for the most part. Um, it's been windy the past couple of days with it blowing the storm, so it's still still dropping leaves pretty good. Gotcha. Yeah, we're just on the tail end of that now, where a lot of the leaves are on the ground now up here. Yeah, we're just on the tip, front end of it starting here, so that's kind of what makes it difficult. Is you know you get up. 10, 12 feet, and you can't see anything. So by the time I make it down there next week, it might be timing out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I think for the most part, especially with this, we got all this rain coming in to, um, tonight through Friday. I think that will help knock a lot of them down as well. Yep. What are the temperatures like? Uh, it's been pretty warm. It was 70, 74 today or 75 today. Oh, it got pretty warm today. Yeah, right. And so this little cool front's supposed to push in and bring some rain, and I think it's supposed to keep it still in the low 60s, though, but not really cold at all. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't seem – I mean, obviously for my neck of the woods, that's super warm, but I imagine it's probably just a little mm -hmm. bit above average for down there. Yeah, it's still above average down here. So, that's you know, that's kind of – you know, like I said, I've seen a couple small bucks chasing, but I haven't really seen any any good sign um, of bucks chasing yet. I've seen a couple decent bucks, but they're just, you know, just walking through. They're not, don't look like they're cruising. They don't look like they're doing anything yet. How about just big buck sign in general? Anything, any big tracks and scrapes or any rubs that are catching your eye? Uh, run across a series of rubs on that public, um, and probably the smallest one was probably the size of a baseball, you know, kind of a good rub line that run through there, and then a couple scrapes that had a couple big tracks in it, but outside of that, really nothing. Um, and it had rained, I guess, the first night I was here, so I tried to hit that right after the rain to try to see what kind of first sign there was, and then I'll probably do it again on Friday because it's supposed to stop raining on Friday. So, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was looking at that. There's so much public and it's like, you can just bury yourself in those topos and just pick out spot after spot after spot. But then you look at a lot of that stuff and it's like, man, the access to some of these areas, it's like, is it, if the hunting pressure is low, it's like some of those spots, it almost wouldn't even pay to get into those pinch points. Cause there's decent looking pinch points, a lot closer to the road and a lot closer yeah, to some of those right private now. agriculture fields that are, you know, I'm sure they're probably not getting hit too hard. Yeah. Hunting pressure here for bow season is basically non-existent um youth firearm season was last weekend so there was a little bit of pressure here and there i heard maybe three shots was all i heard all weekend um but it's just there's basically no hunting pressure on public land right now anywhere around do they hit it pretty hard once the firearm season comes around uh to a degree i wouldn't call it really hard i mean probably nowhere near what you're used to up there um but it's going to there's going to be some pressure. I mean, that's the kind of the time when you go a little bit deeper than everybody else. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And then for, let's see, what day was it? Was it Thursday that you, you shot your doe Friday? Uh, it would have been 
Saturday evening, I think. I got in Thursday, rained it on Friday, and then it was Saturday and I shot her. Okay. And by the looks of those pictures, it looked like it all happened pretty fast. I mean, how long did you even sit in the tree before you had an arrow in the ground? Um, Less than an hour. Um, So I got, I think I got into the stand at like 345. Um, They came out at probably maybe four o'clock. It was her and two little ones came out and then they fed around in the food plot for probably 10 minutes and then a little spike came out. And I could tell as soon as he was started coming out, she started getting nervous and he started running her around and he ran her around for probably, probably 45 minutes. He would run her from the food plot I was in to a different food plot. I hear him running through the woods and the whole time her little ones are still in the food plot feeding in front of me. And then, so he ran her around for, like I said, probably close to 45 minutes. And then she ended up popping out at like 20 yards right next to me. And she was just so jumpy that when I shot, she went, she dropped probably eight to nine inches pretty easy, almost the point where I almost shot over. And luckily snuck it in just below the spine and she ran probably 100 yards, 110 yards maybe before she piled up. Yeah, when you showed me the picture of that rib cage, it looked like it was, ended up being pretty decent. Was there pretty good, was there pretty good blood on the ground? I guess you wouldn't really know, but. Yeah, well, that was the bad part because I, I I called my my dad and was like, hey, can you come up here? And so he came up there, and I'd been walking around because right after I shot her, I shot a field point into the food plot where she was standing, so I had a pretty good reference point of where she was once I got on the ground. And from the time it took my dad to get the text message and get up to the food plot was, I don't know, maybe five or ten minutes, and I'd been walking around looking for blood. And couldn't find any, so I was, you know, obviously a little nervous at that point. I was like, oh, crap. And he walks up, and within three seconds, is like, oh, there's blood, there's blood, and was out of the food plot before I even seen the blood that he saw in the food plot. And so his, his squirrel dog had followed him up there, um, and so we were started a blood trail into the woods a little bit, and his squirrel dog went up ahead of us and, you know, was standing in one spot. And I noticed he was standing there, and I was like, well, you know, Cooper's his name. I was like, well, Cooper's standing in one spot, so he probably found her. And sure enough, he was standing there chewing on her. So, And that was your first real experience in shooting that new site, which, yeah, I mean, for like for me, I, I had to shoot that thing a lot before I, I felt comfortable enough to where I was taking it out in the woods. And I'm still not quite at the point, I think, where I just flip it around and hunt with it. But you just dove right in. Yeah, so I put it on... Um, I got it on Saturday morning when the mail ran on Saturday morning and I got the site in the mail. And so I slapped it on the bow and, you know, read through the directions and took it outside and shot it to figure out which V I needed, um, which was, you know, I, there were some learning errors in there on my part because I thought all the 20 yard tick marks were in the same spot on all the V's. But then I found out, you know, cause I couldn't figure out why I wouldn't get sighting it in very well. But you have to, when you put a new V in, you have to recite it in at 20 yards. That makes sense. And then go back to 30 and 40 to figure out if the drop is correct. So once I figured that out, it was pretty simple to figure out which V I needed. And once I had it sighted in, you know, the, to me, the tick marks are too distracting. I learned about it. He mentioned that. Because what I was trying to do was I was referencing like the left hand V 
in the tick mark, and I was trying to line that up with the left side of the you know circle target that he sends. Yep. And so once I got it sighted in where I felt, you know, all right, it's it's hitting accurately, uh, first thing I did was I just flipped it around because of the tick marks were too distracting. And I would just, you know, I would start anywhere from 15 yards and I would just walk and then I'd just stop wherever I was. I'd turn around and draw back and set the V on the target and shoot. And I was impressed at how how reliable the ranging distance was. Um, I shot from probably 12 yards to upwards of 45 yards, and I could shoot softball gripe-sized groups with it, you know, three arrows at varying distances in there, basically. So you were pretty happy with it from that standpoint? Um, yeah, right off, the, right off the bat, I was confident enough that I was like, all right, I'm, you know, it's staying on, and I'm going hunting with it tonight. So you just took it right that same day and shot a doe with it? And I mean, yep. if she went and ducked as far as she did, you probably would have been pretty much spot on. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I would have been spot on. But she, that little buck, could just run her around so much. She was jumpy, and she, you know, when she walked out, she looked calm. And I set it that V on there and squeeze it loose, and she dropped to the point I was like, I'm gonna miss over her at 20 yards. Now, would you, if she would have been at like 40? Do you think you still would have had the same level of comfort? Um, probably. I mean, I typically won't shoot at a whitetail over 30 for the most part. Um, but, you know, at 30 yards, I would have no problem, uh, you know, taking that shot. And that was the thing is, you know, I would have thought when I shot that deer, I would have had to have thought about the sight picture a lot more than I did. You know, I just remember coming to full draw bringing the V up on her chest, you know, making sure I was like, okay, I can see all the vitals in the chest cavity and then, you know, just squeeze and pop. It went off and there was that. It wasn't like I was, you know, super focused on, you know, holding the pin in one specific spot. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So do you think you're going to keep it on then at least for the foreseeable future? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. get a couple, definitely want to get a couple more, you know, kills and under it, you know, but so far, you know, I've shot it every day, basically just doing that same thing, just putting their, the reference target that they send up and, and shooting it from, you know, 20 to however far out I get basically and just verifying that, yep, it's, you know, it works, it shoots the way it should, you know, and, and that's the, the biggest thing I've seen with it is sometimes like if I take a really long break, you know, my first shot, I may not, I may reference the V slightly different. I may not bury it as deep into the V. Gotcha. I may just like lightly set it in the V. And I've noticed a little bit of vertical difference in that. Um, but if you, you know, like looking at just a paper target that's all shot up, pretty much everything is good left and right. They're just, you know, minor differences in high and low. So I've got a real good vertical string of, you know, just, arrows that have been in the target compared to missing left or missing right. And then the only thing that you would probably change on it would be to have those V's be a little bit thinner. Yeah. Yeah. The V's have to me personally, you know, and I, I get the design behind it. They're trying to make a, a bow hunting site. that's extremely durable, but that's my biggest thing is the V's are just way too 
thick. Um, so when you're, you know, on a deer, because I've, I put, you know, held it out when I had those deer out there 20 or 30 yards, you know, I was holding my bow out referencing the V on their body. Um, just trying to get an idea of what the side picture was going to look like. And, you know, especially on a small yearling deer or a fawn, man, those V's sometimes cover up pretty much the entire deer. And it's like, holy cow, you know, if I was trying to shoot a, a fawn at 30 yards, you know, you can't see anything in front of the chest cavity or the back half of the body, basically. So I would definitely narrow those things up tremendously. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I can, like I said, I printed off those 3D printed samples and I'll make one that matches that 14 insert. And the only thing is that they are more flexible. Like you can, if we, if you stick it in the site, it might be fine. But like, if you grab those, those two little things with your fingers and the 3D printed ones, you can like get them to flex around a bit. Right. And then you need to spray paint. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, I just want to see how, how much of a difference the thinner Vs actually would make. Uh, because what I'll probably end up doing is taking like a set of uh, calipers or something and basically scratching on the V, you know, kind of how thick I want it, and then maybe just taking a, a file or something and trying to, to file that down to get it thinned out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, a bunch of guys have been asking me too about what I think, because I've like all the videos I've been posting, you can see that site plain as day. It really stands out with the color. And I've been trying to hold off as much as possible until I've like gotten a few actual deer kills with it. Um, and so for me last Thursday, that was my first deer that I shot with it. And what were your, what were your initial thoughts with it? I mean, I, the deer was pretty close 20 yards, right? Or yeah. I mean, I, I, I could have, the deer was close enough that I probably could have just like peeked outside of the peep site and just, instinctively shot it you know it was like it was like one of those chip shots you couldn't miss but i remember looking through the the peep site and the v and and i honestly don't even remember really looking at the tick marks because usually i'm still at the point where i'm still referencing the tick marks and using those 20 yard ones but i mean when it was that close i just kind of looked at the spot i wanted to hit and the sight picture seemed right and i just remember releasing and it hit perfect center punched the heart and the doe ran off so but I, but I also, it's like for, you know, the beginning of the season, there's been a few times where I've had deer walk through that I haven't shot at. And I've done the same to kind of to put the V on them and see how close it is to what I know the range is. Like, uh, I had a couple smaller yearling bucks come through one of them at 30, one at 25, and I would just aim at it and I would get it to where it seemed like the, uh, the V was about right on the vitals. And then I would like look at the tick marks to see, okay, are these tick marks right on 25 where I know that that deer is standing or are they off a little bit? And usually they're pretty close, close enough where I would have, have hit the right. deer. Um, but I think it's one of those things too, where it's like the more you practice on like 3d targets or even, I guess, printed targets that are realistic in size, the more that's going to help. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing is it's, you know, like you said, it's a bow hunting site. It's designed to hit the deer in the chest cavity every time. And to me, I think that's what it's, that's what it does well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good at just center punching, whatever you're aiming at. Yeah. And, and uh, I shot a squirrel with it too. How did that go? I, I didn't, well, <laughs> I thought it was a good, good at first. I shot the, the squirrel with about a 10 yard shot. And 
it's impossible to shoot squirrels. I'm telling you, man, when they're on the ground, squirting around, they're impossible. It's like by the time you start to pull the, the trigger on the release, it's like they've gone another three feet. So <laughs> like for this particular squirrel, it, uh, it was on a tree about 10 yards away and it was running down and it stopped on the tree. So I drew back and I just, you know, it was kind of silhouetted against the side of the tree. So I knew I had basically a ground as a backstop. I wasn't going to lose the arrow. And I shot and the squirrel dropped out of the tree and just kind of flopped and lay there motionless. And I was like, all right, cool. I got some, some squirrel. I can take it home, fry it up or whatever. And, uh, this was right at last light when I knew that like no more deer were going to come in. I could hear, I would have been able to hear a deer if it was going to come in. And I was like, well, the hunt's over. I'm going to hunt someplace else tomorrow. So I just took the shot and I, I started getting all my stuff together and started like basically climbing down out of the tree. And I hear some rustling in the leaves. I look over and the squirrel gets up and runs away at Liz's like five minutes <laughs> after. I was like, what the, <laughs> like, you gotta be kidding me. I don't know how like that could have possibly, I can understand if it was like a, a blunt tip arrow or something like that, where I just kind of knocked it out temporarily, but I was shooting a cut on contact broadhead and feathers. So I don't know like what could have stunned that squirrel that to the point where it got up and, and ran away. That was, maybe, that was very maybe strange. You didn't, maybe you didn't hit it. Maybe you hit so close to it that when the arrow flexed and then snapped over, the arrow actually like smacked the squirrel in the head and stunned him. It's possible. I mean, that close, you don't really know what happens because it's all just like instantaneous. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what would. I've done that before with a twenty-two or a seventeen. You know, I've shot squirrels head shooting them and just skin just the top of their head basically just enough to take the hair off the top of their head and they hit the ground and you know pick them up and this is when i used to wear vests i pick them up and just stick them in the vest behind me and keep on hunting and then like you said it may be five minutes it may be 10 minutes later all of a sudden the squirrel behind you in the vest comes alive <laughs> and once out and it's it's a mad scramble to get out of that vest as quickly as possible but i can say i've had that happen probably six or seven times and I no longer use the vest. I carry them by hand now. So if that happens, I can just drop them. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's pot that's the only thing that makes sense is maybe I just like nicked the, the skull, not enough to like actually puncture it, but just grazed it basically just gave him a ringer. But, uh, yeah, I, the other thing too, is I've seen a lot of black squirrels in the area. I don't know how common they actually are, but I've seen like two of them, in the last just few sets that I've been out there. Yeah, I think it depends. There's some localities where they have a, a pretty good pocket, basically, of black squirrels. I know an area that in northern Arkansas that's got a pretty good pocket of black squirrels. I think they're the, um, you know, eastern gray squirrel variety, but they're actually black. Um, you know, a lot of people may see some and think they're a black squirrel, but they were actually just those squirrel that's been eating a heck of a lot of walnuts and gotten stained from the walnut holes. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that um, that doe that I shot, this was on one of those metro hunts. And, you know, normally how, like, when guys talk about beast-style hunting, it's always in reference to, to mature bucks. And right. usually, usually hunting does is something totally different and there's a different style and they're, they're betting differently and all this sort of stuff. Well, the way that I set up on this particular hunt was basically like pure beast style. And the fact that 
there was cattails and then there was this big peninsula of hardwoods and it was just a mix of poplar and really dense buckthorn and it just stuck right out into these cattails and then along the very tip there was brush that extended out into the cattails for you know 30 40 50 yards and so i basically you know because i had the ability to a, a few weeks prior i went in and just cleared out a whole bunch of that buckthorn along the tip of that point and just kind of cleared out an area maybe 15 yards in diameter and so when i actually went in to hunt it i got in there i don't know three o'clock in the afternoon got in there real quiet picked one of those poplar trees that was about 10 yards away from the actual edge of the cattails and i just climbed up and and got set up in the tree and maybe 45 minutes before dark i could hear some rustling in the cattails and i got ready and then nothing happened and then like 10 minutes later more rustling in the cattails got ready nothing happened and now it's getting fairly close it's about sunset and there's all these little birds chickadees and whatnot making a bunch of noise jumping around in the marsh sounded like deer but then i heard that unmistakable rustle again in the cattails and this time like i knew for sure like there was no doubt it was a deer and so it kept getting closer sounded like it was right in front of me and i couldn't see it finally it appeared about 30 yards right on this trail that that's coming out of the cattails facing straight toward me and this doe i'm sure she was she was better right there at this point she was just slowly working away in and no fawns just really methodical and slow like she would take a step look around scan start eating some grass 30 seconds later she'd take another two steps repeat so when i first saw her at 30 yards by the time she got to about 10 yards it was a legitimate like i don't know seven eight minutes she was moving really slow and really cautiously in an area where typically there's not a whole ton of of hunting pressure especially in that spot i don't know if anybody's hunted that particular area on that peninsula for for years and years and so eventually she got right to the edge of the swamp at 10 yards and i thought she was might take the trail that goes right under my tree and i never would have got a shot luckily she spun 90 degrees started eating some of the grass again and then she looked back behind her where she was coming from and that gave me the opportunity to draw back and uh like i said i mean at that point she pretty much filled up the site housing and so I just released the arrow and she took off and, and ran 50 yards into the cattails and that was it. But I thought it was so interesting how her demeanor and the way she acted and the way she betted was so similar to what guys typically correlate with what a buck would do in that type of scenario. And I don't know if that was the fact that she didn't have any fawns and she was an older deer. Maybe that has something to do with it. You know, a lot of times people don't really talk about old does acting differently than young does except for you know if they are uh, more cautious but this act more like a buck than than a doe so i thought that was really interesting yeah do you think maybe she may have been a little bit more alerted because you went in and cleared out some of that vegetation before the hunt i i, I really don't think so i mean this place is is typically, I mean, here, here's the thing too, is that was like weeks prior that I did that and okay. it, it had rained multiple times. Like I, I would think maybe like the first couple of days, if she was walking through there, she'd have been kind of freaked out, but beyond that certain point, and she didn't act, she didn't act nervous. She didn't act skittish at all. She was just really cautious. If that makes any sense. 
Like she was, yeah. she was flip, flicking her tail and, and eating. She was just moving really slow and really cautiously. And I think that was just how she, how she acted. Yeah, it was a, you sent me a picture. That was a pretty big body doe. Um, at least it looked like in the sled. I mean, it was filling up the entire sled you had. Yeah, I, I didn't have my scale working, but I, when I quartered it up in the garage, I, I measured all the stuff separately. The hind quarters were 60 pounds. Um, the front quarters were 40 pounds. No, 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 I'm, I'm saying this wrong. The hind quarters are 40. The front quarters were 20. So there it gets you 60. The rest of the carcass was another 60. And then the back straps and the tenderloins were like 11. So she was like 131 dressed, all said and done. So I, from that, I, I figured the live weight must have been probably around 165, 170. And that was what we had to drag out was that, that full body weight because we couldn't gut them there. Right. Yeah, I mean, definitely looked like a, you know, at least a three-and-a-half-year-old deer, you know, easily. Is there is that method that I showed you with the when I sent the picture to you for the tooth wear? So I, I was doing like a little bit of research. I've never really done this a whole lot in the past, but it seems like the tooth replacement and tooth wear aging. It's like you can you can tell obviously a fawn from a one and a half year old. You can tell a one and a half year old from a two and a half year old, but from that that two to sort of five and a half, and then especially beyond five and a half, it gets kind of kind of fuzzy yeah it gets real fuzzy it kind of becomes all you know personal opinion um you know but pretty much up to you can like you said you can a fawn a one and a half a two and a half you really get anything above two and a half and you're getting into that whole personal opinion you know some people say you can go to the three and a half mark but when you see like a picture of a jawbone and somebody's like, that's a five and a half year old deer. It's like, dude, that is a wild guess. It's like, you know, that deer could be four and a half. That deer could be six and a half. That deer could be seven and a half. Nobody really knows. You know, the best way to do it is the, the annuli basically where they take the, I think it's two front teeth and basically they cut it and dye it and count rings like on a tree basically to age a deer. That's really the only accurate way to be able to do it. Is that something I can do by myself? No. Cross-section with a hacksaw and yeah. use a microscope and work. You got to get them paper thin, unless you got something that'll slice it paper thin at work. Nope. Um, nope. <laughs> um, but I think, like Missouri, I noticed when I checked in my dough, they asked a question on there that kind of threw me for a loop, and I haven't. I haven't researched it enough to figure out. They ask if the distance from the front corner of the eye to the nose was greater than four and a half inches. And so that one kind of threw me for a loop trying to figure out what they're, I'm guessing they're trying to use that as like a, an age strategy, you know, is a, cause you think about like a, it was, this deer was a two and a half year old deer, um, and it had a snout to no eye distance longer than that four and a half. So that's what I was trying to figure out is if they're trying to figure out how many of these deer are, you know, have a, a longer snout compared to the older deer, which might have the shorter snout. 
I haven't looked into that since I filled that out, but I thought that was a really interesting question they ask. Yeah, I guess I always assume that a, a deer's head sort of, if anything, grows longer as it gets older. Just as their whole See, me, their whole head grows in general. But, I mean, if their head getting bigger doesn't necessarily it, mean that that ratio stays the same. Maybe, they're, maybe, right. the, maybe the head gets a back end rather than the... Yeah, and it could be, but she had a long snout. Um, and we pulled the jawbone on her, and she was only two and a half. So, because you think about fawns, you know, they got a fawns got such a short, stubby little head, right? And I don't know. I may have to may have to look into that a little more to see what their theory behind that is. Maybe they're just trying to figure out. Maybe if they know that, like, once a deer is beyond one and a half years old, maybe that's the point where, like, you know, eighty-five, ninety percent of them have distances longer than whatever that number is. So maybe they're just trying yeah, to get a rough percentage well of, of what the harvest percentage is that's beyond yeah. one and a half years old. Yeah, and especially with does trying to figure out, okay, what, what is our age percentage of does being harvested? Is it less than one and a half or is it more than one and a half? Right. Which could very well be. Do you have any, just, do you have any links or, or, uh, or contacts or whatever for doing the tooth annuli eye aging. I, is that something I can just Google and, and figure out how to do that or, or where uh, to send it yeah, to? Yeah, there's a, um, I know there's a couple companies out of, um, oh crap, Montana. Um, Robbie Denning on rock slide. Uh-huh. I don't know if he, I don't know if he does it, but he's a real big proponent of it. Um, and he pushes doing it for a lot of deer. I, if I remember right, it used to be about 75 bucks to have it done. Um, when I killed my black bear in Arkansas, it was actually mandatory that I had to send a tooth in for aging. And that's what they did was they pulled one of the, one of the teeth out of it, um, out of the skull and sent it in for aging. Yeah. I think we got to do that in Minnesota too for black bears. Yeah. So, and I, I, like I said, I think there's a couple companies that do it. I know one of them's out of like Montana. So I think that's where they sent my, my black bear to. Uh, but yeah, you should be able to, to Google it. Or you, if you're on rock slide, you can jump on there and get a hold of Robert, Robbie Denning and he will point you in the right direction. I'm sure. I got his, his book and I feel like I do remember reading something about that. So maybe there's a link within the book. If not, I suppose I can reach out to him. Yeah, I'm sure. But I think it's something interesting that, you know, a lot of people, you know, if I don't know if the prices came down or not, but if the price has come down enough, I think it would be good for most people to send in and find out. Cause I'm sure, you know, a lot of people missed age deer just based off antlers or whatever, and especially those. You know, I always get a kick out of people saying, well, I only hunt mature deer, and I kind of chuckle and giggle a little bit because how many mature does have they let walk by them and they've not killed them? Well, if you hunt mature deer, you would have killed that deer. Yeah, I'm, I'm so bad at aging does that I don't even try. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like if it's a, an adult doe, I'm shooting it, and if it's a metro hunt, I'm shooting yeah. whatever walks by. Um, here, we, here we go. Uh, from Robbie's book, it says uh, – the gold standard see my outfitting website at we scout for you.com four is the number we scout number four you letter you 
uh, for more information on having your buck lab age. So it sounds like if we go to that website, we'll be able to figure out where to send it to. Yeah, he may even do it now. Um, I don't know if he does or not, but I, I do know he's a one of the big proponents of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd, I don't really care other than it's just I'm curious, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would give you a good idea. You know, obviously when you start getting into that three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, especially in those, you know, especially in the field, it's going to be really hard to distinguish them apart. Um, but I will say I killed a doe in high school that I called. So this was back in 2000 and I don't know, probably 2004, 2005. I killed her and I thought she had CWD. Uh, because she was skin and bones. Um, but when I called, I even called the conservation. I was like, hey, you guys might want to come out and look at this deer, yada, yada, yada. Um, and they, I can't remember if they came out or not, but that deer had no teeth in its head whatsoever. Um, so, I, I mean, it would have been difficult to even age that deer. So it might have that's just been, what I remember was there was. Might have been a yeah, 10 plus year old, just super old deer. Yeah. There was no teeth in that deer's head whatsoever. Huh. And so she was on the downhill. She was she was well beyond the downhill. She was almost rock bottom. Took her out of her nursing home years. Yeah. Yeah, that is exactly right. So is your is your plan then for the, the rest of this week to just pretty much any day it's sunny, you're gonna be out there, are you gonna start sitting all day? Um, uh, probably not. I don't sit all day. It's never really been my type, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to try to hit. I've typically only been hunting the evenings right now. I was just trying to get an idea of, you know, what kind of movement is going on. Cause you know, I can hunt one of these food plots and probably going to see, you know, six to 15 deer any given night. Um, so I'm trying to see what's, you know, what's out there checking the, the does that are out in that food plot and how much chasing is going on. Um, it's been seeing a little bit of increase of it. And probably going to start hunting a little some mornings, uh, especially with daylight savings time. What is that? Sunday? Probably. Yeah, what seems like it's always about this time of year. On, yeah, I think it's the fourth, so Sunday or something like that. Um, start hunting, hunt more mornings. Uh, probably going to try to move in on that public land and see, set up on some of that, you know, more active big buck sign um, and see what I can, what I can turn up over there. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like when I get down there, will I think depend a lot on how the Minnesota weekend goes. Cause I'm going back down to the Southeast part of the state for the opener on Saturday. So I'll drive down Friday night and it looks like so far we're going to get a West wind and I've been scouting virtually some of these areas. And so I had, you know, kind of the more common like West, Southwest, South, Northwest, you know, the common wind directions for this time of the year, all sort of picked right. out. And there's, I found some really good spots for like Southeast winds. Um, but we don't get those quite as commonly as we did back in September, those real warm season breezes. So, yeah. so we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that just looks like, so I guess to set this up and give it a little bit more a background about what it, what it looks like down there for firearms, it's, it's not going to be the same like it was for the public land challenge because there wasn't a whole lot of pressure that time of year. 
Whereas from everybody that I've talked to and everybody that I know that has been down there during a firearm season, it can range from heavy pressure to absolute chaos with like guys, guys pulling up in buses and like 15, 20 people loading out and doing drives, you know, for all these hills and doing pushes and stuff. But, um, it sounds like there's two main strategies that can work and are very effective. And I've, I know people have shot some really big bucks down there doing these. Number one is to expect the pressure and basically just hunt the escape routes, which in that type of terrain, it's usually, if you have access up high and, you know, fields and and parking lots and that type of thing, and then down low, it's all just wooded and thick and there's no access down low. Then if you hunt the spines of the ridges that lead down into that low uh, valley, that those ravines, those drainages, those tend to be the areas that the the deer will take on their route to get to that security cover. And so I've seen a couple giants that have been taken that way, oftentimes even pretty close to parking lots, closer than you would expect. But, um, what the other, I guess, plan would be is, you know, not all this stuff is, is really obvious and easy to access for hunters. There's some of this stuff, cause I mean, there's a mix of WMAs and state land and county land and, and whatnot down there. Some of this stuff, it doesn't look huntable unless you were to look at it through like Onyx or something like that, because you might have no signs. You might have no parking lots. It just happens to be public land and it might be really hard to access because of the terrain. For example, there's a a place down there that I found that's, it's all public, but it's on the side of like a highway with a guardrail. There's no parking or anything. You'd have to somehow find a place to park along the side of the road or or somewhere and then backtrack along the edge of the highway and then climb up a 500 foot fairly steep bluff that has some yellow and orange on the slope slope angle shading to get in there. That's really the only way you can access. But then once you get up there, it's like you can cover from that one spine like two or three drainages that uh, all have just huge private land, agriculture, big blocks of land where you look at it and it's like, man, that could be an outfitter. That could be some, some rich dude who has, you know, QDMA for the last 10 years. So it's like, you never know, you might not run into anybody up there, or you might just run into, you know, those private land guys, but the odds of running into other public land hunters, I would think would be extremely low. So those are kind of the the two options. What I'm leaning more towards, I think is the second of the two, you know, doing the extra legwork to get into some of those really remote spots where I might not see as many people. And I might be able to, to get by on some of that more, um, actual, just unpressured rut activity, as opposed to just strictly the, the deer that are, you know, sort of on their escape patterns. So we'll see how that goes. It might be the right move. It might be the wrong move, but there's only one way to find out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing, especially trying to find those, pieces of public land like you said that may not have the the parking lot that may not have the pull-off areas you know like that's similar to here there's a lot of public land that you can access just from the roadside ditch you know you can just ease off the road and ease up to the off the main part of the road and be able to access that piece of public land without actually having to pull off in a road or or something that's going to attract a lot more attention right exactly so we'll see i mean my i think my standards are going to be fairly high for that hunt, mostly because I'm using a shotgun. So, I mean, and obviously the caliber of deer down there can be 
really good. So after that first day goes by, I guess we'll see if I need to adjust my standards or not because I'm really only going to have hopefully just like two to four days down there. If, if I haven't shot anything after four days, I might just call it and then drive down to Missouri. Right. Because I'm dealing with sort of, you know, a few extra days or a few limited days in Missouri before that firearm season kicks in. And I don't want to pay for the extra tag. Yeah. Yeah. That's the big thing. So what's your, when you get here, what's your plan? Are you going to try to scout some public land the first day? Um, you know, what's coming here? What's your plan right off the bat then? Um, I think, well, it depends on what time of the day I get down there. Probably if I end up getting down there late, uh, what I might do is start the first thing the next morning and start to do some of those routes, do some spot checks. There's a, a lot of the, excuse me, a lot of the areas that I marked off on on X are basically places that I can make fairly short, simple loops from the road provided it's not too thick with the understory and just be able to spot check some of these uh, pinch points, some of these saddles, some of these ravines that I think might have trails that are crossing. And that might be the first half of that day. And then maybe in the afternoon I decide what to do. Do I want to hunt? Do I want to keep scouting and just kind of figure it out from there? If what I'm, you know, what I might do is if the public land scouting hasn't been going great, I might just come back and do like a food plot set or something like that in the evening. Right. But if it ends up looking really good, maybe I'll just end up sitting out there. I guess I'll play it by ear. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, even if you get in late, you know, it's nothing to run up to the food plot and be able to hunt. Um, you're going to see deer, no doubt. Um, so just, I mean, you can keep that, that in the back pocket. Like you said, that's kind of what I've been doing is just, you know, haven't, haven't been pressuring a lot, but kind of want to see what activities going on. Yep. Um, but haven't found anything good on the public land or really hit hard yet. Um, hopefully after this rain, it may get some deer up moving. So, you know, even youth season, you know, they had a big buck, uh, competition for the youth hunters. Um, and there really wasn't a whole lot of big deer turned in. I think the one that ended up winning, it was maybe only like a hundred, 150 inches or so. Um, only, so only 150. Still, you know, That's a pretty good deer. Yeah. Only one. Only 150. Yeah, most of them were, were smaller, but yeah, it seems like most of the bigger deer around here haven't got up and started moving yet. Gotcha. Well, then hopefully I, I end up timing it right. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's going to be a little bit later this year around here. Um, for the most part, we've got one pretty decent 10-point. Um, He's probably 1... 35, 140. Um, I've seen him once or twice, um, but he seems to be slipping out right after dark. So when you say see him like with binoculars, like glassing him or just yeah. like driving on the road. Yeah. Glassing him. Um, he was out here in the front yard two nights ago, about 30 minutes after dark, I guess. So he was, I don't know, 60 yards from the, from the house. So, yeah, I would think that once this rain stops, either, number one, you're going to see a lot of deer probably, I would imagine, on that field. And then, like you said, two, you'll be able to find out what what are the most fresh scrapes like that next day after. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my big plan is once this rain lets up, um, I guess it's supposed to be 
Thursday night into Friday. Um, you're going to hit that public land again. I've already got a lot of the, the scrapes marked, and I kind of marked them as like I kind of numbered them in a system of, you know, one being the most fresh to like five being an old scrape. Um, so I'm, I have them labeled in there, you know, like scrape and then have it labeled as a number basically. And that gives me an idea of which ones to hit first to see if they've still freshened or back up after the rainfall to know whether or how I want to hunt that area. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. So hopefully we'll be able yeah, to get some action. Yeah, time, that's for sure. Yep. Probably be able to do another podcast while we're down there. Make it, yeah, make it hopefully, live. Hopefully be able to, yeah, knock out at least one. So. Sounds good. Um, hunting public is in Missouri right now, too. At least some of them are. Yeah, I seen. Uh, uh, I guess Aaron killed the killed the deer on his family farm. Yep. So yeah, it looked like a pretty good deer. So cool. I don't know. I don't know what part of Missouri they're in, but I know they're they just published that one, and I think they were supposed to meet up with some another collaborative hunt. I think it was with. Uh, Hush. I don't even know who it was now. Yeah, maybe that's who it is. So, yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. Cool. Well, I'll keep you posted on the uh, the travel plans and how the Minnesota hunt goes. Yeah, definitely. Just keep me in the loop. Um, you know, I'll be around here hitting up scouting areas ahead of time. Um, hopefully have a better idea by the time you start down here on, on what's a good sign and what's not. So, Sweet. Sounds good. That'll do it for this week. As always, make sure to give the Podcast Network a review on iTunes. Follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you stream your podcast episodes. Bobby and I are both using Arrow Hunter tree saddles. Whether you're already a hardcore mobile hunter, toting around a lightweight stand for miles in search of overlooked spots, or you're simply looking to reduce weight from your current setup, a hunting saddle can be a great option to look into. Bobby and I are both running Arrow Hunter saddles this year. You can find more information and ordering instructions at arrowhunter.us. As always, thanks for listening.